Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. If you love hip-hop, you know how much of it is powered by sampling, the process of taking little bits of other songs to build a new melody or harmony. For decades, it's been controversial, and the law around it has made it harder for artists to do their work. Author Dan Charnas, who wrote the biography of Detroit producer Jay Dilla, has proposed a new way for artists to work and protect their work. He joins us next to discuss on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Michigan School of Psychology and the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you decided to join us. If you love hip-hop and grew up with it shaping your understanding of music and culture the way I did, you know how critical the idea of sampling is to it. Artists take small pieces of another song, sometimes change the range or the speed or the cadence of the sound, and produce something new with it. It's actually one of the cooler parts of the interconnectivity of music. Songs you love in one form become the bedrock for songs you come to love in a different form. And the process builds on itself over and over to become a cultural pyramid of sorts, an homage to the idea that we all learn from and grow through each other. Despite its widespread use, this revolution of sampling in music has brought a lot of challenges to the art form. Creators are granted ownership rights over their creations, and because of that, legal disputes between artists and copyright holders have come up over and over again. And these different sides have different interests in how these works are used and how people are compensated for the things they create. On one hand, because of sampling, performers like Jay Dilla, right here in Detroit, have been able to create transformational works that we just absolutely love, things that we identify with. And on the other hand, though, there's a history of original creators who believe if their work is used, they should be entitled to license how others use it in any way they see fit, much like the author of an article or a book. It's a really difficult issue that our next guest has been thinking a lot about these days. Dan Charnas is a professor, a journalist, and author of Dilla Time, a biography about the famed Detroit producer, which recently won the 2023 Penn Literary Award for Biography. He also recently wrote a piece in Slate titled, It's Time to Legalize Sampling. Dan, I'm really excited to talk about this, as you can tell, and I'm really excited that you're here uh, to join us. Uh, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for having me. And I love your turn of phrase, cultural pyramid. Yeah. To use that. Yeah, right. We all borrow from each other. We all build on things together. So I, I want to start with you talking just a little about something that recently happened that uh, that inspired you to really come out and say something different about this argument. De La Soul, which uh, I referenced in the open, is one of my favorite hip-hop groups of all time. I, it, it is one of the groups that, uh, that unmistakably expanded the idea of the appealability of, of hip-hop, in large part by using samples like the one I played in the open. Uh, but talk about the the difficulty that we've had for decades now over what that means in terms of rights and what happened recently that has at least made it possible for us to listen to De La Soul again in a digital form, but that has held the music back, in your opinion, in some really important ways. Sure. Um, well, this album, this debut album from this group, De La Soul, was released in 1989. The album's called Three Feet High and Rising. And it really was a landmark, uh, in not only in hip-hop, but a landmark work of American popular musical culture. It was, you know, the word that I use to describe it musically is a riot. Like, it literally has just jumps from song to song and from song to skit, uh, in and out of different kinds of cultural references. The very first song, Three is the Magic Number, mm -hmm. samples Schoolhouse Rock, which is what you and I grew up with watching on TV. Absolutely. Uh, later on, it, it, it skitters over to a song composed of a little bit of the Turtles song, You Showed Me, over a French high school language lab reader created by Scott Forsman that I actually used when I was in high school. <laughs> so you want to talk about a piece of art speaking to you or speaking to a generation. De La Soul, that was just one of the ways that it spoke to our generation. Uh, and back in that day when hip hop was not quite mainstreamed, this way of making music, this sonic pastiche, uh, you know, was not so, uh, it was very under the, the, the radar, so to speak. Uh, and so while there was, uh, there, there were sort of sample clearances going on, meaning that if you took a little digital bit of somebody else's song, you would have to not only clear that use with the owner of the recording, but the owner of the song that is performed on that recording. So two different owners, right, for every sample. Mm -hmm. um, they cleared some of the bigger samples, but they did not clear some of the smaller ones that, that, that they thought were inconsequential. But the reality is United States law offers no protection to that kind of copying. And so they got into a lawsuit in 1990 with uh, Flo and Eddie from the Turtles. They had to end up settling for something like $1.7 million to keep the sample on their record. Uh, and remember, hip-hop records weren't selling that much back then. You know, that was selling maybe 500,000 copies, something like that. So when it came time for the digital realm, for uh, for 
the music business. Um, De La Soul was sort of left out of that that transformation. Mm -hmm. And De La Soul's catalog, their early catalog, which was laden with samples, was left out of uh, the streaming services or left off of the streaming services, in part because of a dispute with their label at the time, Tommy Boy. And the dispute was, who is responsible for paying for these samples that haven't been cleared? The label's position was it was the producer's and the artist's responsibility, and the artist's position was the opposite. So this was finally resolved when a company called Reservoir came in and basically bought the catalog and said that they would foot the bill for the sample clearance. But still, there were some samples that couldn't be cleared. So when you listen to De La Soul on Spotify or on Tidal, this, this incredible debut album, there are some key moments that are just gone. They're gone, I know. And <laughs> yes. And so, of course, as somebody who loves hip hop and who thinks that it is a vital part of American culture and history, uh, it makes me furious. And I was already furious because I had just spent the last four years writing this book about this genius producer from Detroit named Jay Dilla whose drum machine is in the Smithsonian, <laughs> but his entire way of making music is not protected by law. And as somebody who actually spent um, almost two decades in the record business, I cleared samples as part of what I did for my artists at Warner Brothers and other places. Uh, I know that there is a lot of hypocrisy in the way that the law understands this kind of music making. And I know that there's a solution for it. Yeah. So uh, this article that I recently wrote is sort of um, like a, a grenade thrown into the marketplace <laughs> of ideas. Yeah. It, I mean, it is that in the sense that it, I think it sends a lot of people's minds scattering <laughs> uh, and it, it, it uh, blows to bits. Uh, some of the thinking that I think we've clung to for, a long time, uh, and I do want you to talk more about what you would do as uh, as a solution. But before we get there, I actually want to talk a little about sort of um, the cultural relevancy of of what's what's happening here and the racial context for this. This is an important issue because these are black artists, uh, for the most part, who were creating a black form of music and borrowing, in many, many cases, uh, from white artists. And the, the, the strain over history uh, about who gets paid for their work, who owns their work, has uh, a racial dimension to it that I think plays out in this in this debate, um, sometimes just beneath the surface, but but I feel like uh, uh, more and more it's it's right out in the open. There there is something we have to think about here um, that that ties into the the history of inequality in the music industry. I am so glad that you brought that up because it's it's really true in all law. Watch who gets protected by law and watch who does not get protected by law. Same laws, right? But different kinds of protection accorded to different folks. 
um, there was a phenomenon uh, in the 1950s of these cover songs, right? When rhythm and blues really started to become embraced by young white teens in the 1950s, there were artists like Pat Boone who were essentially put in place by uh, the powers that be mm -hmm. uh, to remake songs by, say, Little Richard and Fats Domino. And because an artist like Pat Boone and the record company for which he records has more access, uh, especially during Jim Crow America, um, though that kind of copying basically had the blessing of the business. Uh, and yet, as you've noted, if a young black artist samples some British artist, uh, you know, from the 1960s, mm -hmm. uh, that artist can go ahead and because it, it's a, a sample, a, a bit of a different kind of copying, we can talk about the dimensions of that, but uh, that young artist can be sued, e even with the irony that that British artist got their whole shtick from black artists before them. Mm -hmm. And they are also engaging in a different kind of copying. And there are certain ways, certain kinds of copying that we have come to accept because it benefits certain folks. And there's certain kind of copying that we don't really uh, accept because we don't understand it. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. There is a complete racial dimension to this. And of course, it's not always cut and dry. Sure. Like the Beastie Boys are a white rap group and they did a, a record uh, called License to Ill that had a lot of issues um, we had a lot of Zeppelin sampling. tracks on that uh, on that album, as I remember. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, but I will also tell you this: like um, they, I worked for their producer Rick Rubin in later years, and we dug out some of the unreleased tracks uh, out of his parents' garage in Long <laughs> Island. Uh, they remade; they wanted to remake a song called "I'm Down," right? Interpolate it. Uh, not actually like remake the whole song I'm Down by the Beatles, but to, um, you know, add some rap to it. Mm -hmm. Because they were transforming it in just a small way, the owner of the Beatles catalog at that point, Michael Jackson, could say no. And he did. Yeah. And so this brilliant, funny song remained on this reel until I dug it out <laughs> of the basement. <laughs> I'm talking with Dan Charnas. Uh, he's a professor and an author uh, and a journalist. He's author, importantly, of Dilla Time, uh, which is the biography of Detroit producer Jay Dilla. It recently won the 2023 Penn Literary Award for Biography. Uh, Dan has also recently written a piece in Slate titled, It's Time to Legalize Sampling. Uh, we're talking about sampling, uh, the way in which it, uh, it powers, really, hip-hop uh, in, our, in our culture, and the controversy over that idea of taking pieces of other work and making it into the basis for new work. We want to hear from you, of course, during the conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know about how you feel about artists using samples in their music, but in a broader sense, how you feel about the idea of ownership of ideas, ownership of the things that we create. Uh, does this kind of licensing, this kind of argument about ownership, uh, does it stifle creativity? Does it punish 
certain kinds of artists and reward others? Is there an unfairness involved in the way that we think about these things? Also, let us know if you agree with Dan about how this should all be fixed. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in our conversation that way. Uh, so, Dan, let's talk about your, your solution. Uh, you would make what hip-hop artists are doing legal. Um, and I think an important, an important addendum to that is that you would make it look like other kinds of borrowing that is now legal, uh, which doesn't, uh, doesn't leave the creators of the things that you're borrowing from un, uncompensated. Uh, it would pay them for their work, but it would prevent them from uh, controlling the, the way in which their work is used uh, in the future. Uh, tell me why that makes, that makes sense to you. Okay. Well, just to sort of give a simple overview of the scheme that I'm thinking of. Um, there is already a enshrined, a legally enshrined way for artists, one artist to copy another. Uh, and this refers to the specific realm of songs and song ideas. There is something in our law called a compulsory license or a compulsory, compulsory mechanical license. What that means is Stephen Henderson writes a song and as long as you record it first or as long as it has been recorded once, however, in whichever way you choose, any artist, me, someone else, can remake or re-record that song without you being able to say you know, uh, to stop us, mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. That's called a compulsory license. You're compelled under U U.S. law to license that, to license your song to me so I can remake it as long as I pay you the statutory rate per song, per copy, right? And the reason that that exists is to keep the flow of ideas and innovation going. Copyright is something that is mandated in the Constitution, right? The, the, the Congress in, under the Constitution has the right to set policy around ideas and innovation and intellectual property. And the general idea around that constitutionally has been you want to strike a balance, right? You want to create an economic environment that rewards inventors for their inventions, but you don't want to lock up those inventions forever because folks need to uh, have access to them. Folks need to be able to build on them. And so it worked for many years for intellectual property, like song ideas, in the same way that it did for patents, right? There's a certain term under which, uh, a, a patent owner has uh, uh, exclusivity, and then it passes into uh, you know a public domain. Right. And for copyright, it was the same, except the more and more copyrights, the more and more pieces of intellectual property that have been owned by large corporations, the longer that term has been extended, pushing things out of the public domain. But there are things like the 
the the compulsory license that allow uh, you know folks to essentially enjoy these ideas and other people to make money using these ideas as well. You don't want happy birthday to you locked up forever, right? Right. right. Um, and and so the 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 risk of not having a compulsory license for song remakes or song covers is that anything can essentially become an infringement on a previous idea. And so we we it just strikes this middle ground for us. Now, you can uh, license an entire song through that compulsory license, but what you can't do is license a bit of that song. Right. You can't take a slice of that song, a chorus from a song, a couple of words from that song without the permission of the artist. Uh, and for recordings, taking a piece of an existing recording, there's no compulsory license at all. And there are some arguments that have been used perennially against that. And I actually think those arguments are, are bankrupt and we, we can talk about that. But essentially what I am recommending as a curative for this is a compulsory license for pieces of songs and for pieces of recordings, because we do have compulsory licenses for whole songs. For whole songs. Sure. So if I want to do, redo your whole song, I can do it. If I want to do a piece of your song, I can't. And to me, that's insane. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this really great conversation with uh, Dan Charnas. And we're going to add some other voices to the conversation and talk to some lawyers who work in the field of copyright and uh, intellectual property protection. Hear what they have to say about what goes on in music and what should go on. Also, we'll start to get to you, the listeners, on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number here. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll be right back. Uh, we'll, we'll get you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. Is it okay? For one musical artist to borrow pieces from another musical artist's work to build a new work. Talking on Detroit Today today about sampling, the idea of borrowing pieces of songs, uh, putting them together, altering them maybe a bit, but to create a new work. It is the backbone in many ways of much of hip-hop, but it's also been pretty controversial because uh, the law says you can't really do that unless you have permission. Uh, we're talking with Dan Charnas. He is a journalist and author uh, and uh, so, someone who uh, recently wrote a piece in Slate titled It's Time to Legalize Sampling. Uh, he is the author also of the wonderful biography of Detroit producer J.D. 
Padilla. Uh, that biography recently won the 2023 Penn Literary Award for Biography. Uh, we're talking about maybe a solution to this idea of the controversy over sampling. What if we made it like other type types of borrowing in the music industry uh, where someone can record a song that was written and recorded by somebody else uh, without their permission, but they have to pay uh, for the use of uh, that work. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. As I said, we have been talking to Dan uh, about that, but we also want to add some other voices to the conversation to help talk about what the current laws are and uh, what the current process is for musicians to get samples uh, cleared. Uh, joining us now is Peter DiCola. He is a law professor at Northwestern School of Law and an expert in intellectual property and in copyright law. Uh, Peter, welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, thanks for having me, Stephen, and great to be on with Dan, who's, uh, whose work is amazing. Uh, yes. So g- glad to be part of the conversation. Yeah, no, it's really great to, to have you here as well. So uh, talk about the current framework for sampling uh, and what you think about the idea of, of changing that framework uh, to be a, a little easier for artists who want to use other people's work as a way to build their own. Yeah, well, I agree with Dan um, that the system is broken, uh, so, and I think that a lot of, uh, I think it's great, I think he's really pushing the conversation forward. Um, Twelve years ago, um, my co-author, Kembrew McLeod, and I wrote a book uh, called Creative License, and one of the things we talked about were the costs on creativity um, of making sampling, uh, uh, particularly Collage-based sampling, so uh, so new you know new recordings that want to use lots and lots of samples layered mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. in the style of De La Soul or Public Enemy or the Beastie Boys, um, other artists like that. Um, you know those records are just impossible to license. Um, be, you know because there's so many licenses to obtain. The, the the transactions are difficult to make. The the licensing fees are high, and and so it's a real it's a real problem and. Um, you know those works are just you know basically um, so hard to make. It's a it's a it's a free expression problem. So that you know that that creates a real tension between uh, the copyright system and free expression. And just the one thing I want to add is that part of the problem is the baseline law, but probably the even bigger problem is the way the music industry built up a system around that law that required licensing even for samples that the law already would probably deem to be not infringing. So, so can you talk just a little more about that? Uh, yeah, uh, what that means and how that works. Sure. So, you know, how can so maybe one thing to back up and start is just that you know courts are the places where infringement is defined. This isn't written in the law by Congress. Uh-huh. The, the Congress has left it to the courts to figure out where the line is between infringement and not. Uh, it, it provides a few principles. But the the, statute, the copyright statute doesn't doesn't answer the question. So you know what are courts doing? They're looking, you know, they've said that using parts of a work, as just as you said, Stephen, par- using parts of a work can be infringement. You don't have to take the whole to be infringing. Right. But on the other side, you know, the way that something could not be infringing, one way is that it could be too old. Uh, one way is that it could be too short. <laughs> Another way is that it could be too. 
um, abstract, too much of an abstract idea. Um, and ideas actually are not protected. The, the, techni- the way that lawyers talk about it is, is that there's a, di- uh, there's a line between ideas and then um, specific abstract ideas and then more specific expression. Uh, and so one way that you cannot infringe is that if something's too abstract, and, you know, we, and that's actually quite relevant when we're talking about sound samples. And then the last thing is that maybe what you did is too different. You know, and so it's just not similar enough to be infringement. So in all those ways, the courts have created this space where, and, and, and many of these might apply to sampling. Sometimes people sample things that are quite old. Sometimes people sample things and it's a really, really short sample, and the law would call that too small to be infringement. Um, sometimes things are too abstract. Sometimes things are too different. Uh, and, and, you know, the, I would include under that category of too different, the possibility that lots of samples out there are uh, what's called fair use, um, mm-hmm. which is a situation where if you use it for the right kind of purpose, whether that's an educational purpose or maybe just a really transformative, creative purpose, um, what you've done is not infringement. Now, the Supreme Court is actually deciding a case where we're waiting for the Supreme Court's ruling on where <laughs> the fair use law stands in the context of visual art. And so I can't say with much certainty exactly where the line is with fair use, but I do think that there's, there's some reason to think that some, exi- some samples, even under the existing law, are fair use. And so then what you have to, that's why you have to look to the industry's licensing practices and say, well, wait, if some of these are fair use, why are you demanding payment every right. single time? And that, to me, has a lot to do with ideology, like kind of a pro-copyright ideology in the industry, but also because uh, financially it makes sense for the labels versus their artists to make these things into licensing transactions rather than, than acknowledging that they might be fair use. Sure. Sure. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, you can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you that way. Let's go first to Andrew in White Lake today. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I just want to comment. You know, I, I sample a lot in uh, record store guys. You know, all these things that collectors and people appreciate um, – Sampling such a big part of record collecting and and making records as big as they are these days and vinyl. Um, you know, I, I sample a lot, like I said, and I just think uh, producers, you know, they they obviously need to get their samples cleared, and the artists deserve a lot from um, us recreating their ideas. But also, us producers need something as well. I mean. Right. <laughs> well, I, well, I guess lean more, lean more into that, Andrew. You're doing this. What is it? <clears throat> I guess. What is it that you think is the right, the right balance there? And and how do you make sure in your work that you're that you're doing what you think is the right thing, even uh, to do with with you know with people whose work that you're that you're using? Are you still there, Andrew? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm here. Uh, my main goal is just to do good by the creation and, um, you know, obviously get it cleared properly, but I really am not too knowledgeable on, you know, 50, 50 or 80, 20. I don't know. I just know Mm. something needs to be on the table. Uh, You know, at the end of the day, it it does sound way different and stuff I sample is usually over 40 years old. So, 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. That's not probably too old. No, I mean, I'm I'm really glad to hear from you because you're somebody who's working in the space and, and trying to figure it out. Uh, Dan Charnas, I'll give you a chance to maybe give Andrew some pointers, <laughs> but also put that in the context of, of this argument. Uh, you know, the difficulty here of trying to create work and by and playing by the current rules uh, is is really pretty incredible. Yeah, first of all, you know what what Andrew is saying is, you know, most folks who are doing this kind of collaging are music lovers. We love the artists. We're saying <laughs> right, right. We want them to be enfranchised. We want them to be paid. Uh, and 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 what uh, you know, my fellow guests said, you know, uh, or alluded to, is that the system just isn't in place for us to safely do that, and that is is what rankles, um, you know. And <laughs> I'm just, first of all, I'm just so uh, happy to hear progressive legal voices uh, talking about this. Mm-hmm. It's a delight. Uh, what isn't a delight is the 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 thought of, of waiting for Clarence Thomas to render some kind of decision <laughs> on the future of sampling yeah. like it's just so absurd yeah <laughs> um, so the, the point is to create a system through um, and listen we live in the the era of Shazam where you can digitally detect sound sure. you know, on your phone. Uh, we live in the age of the algorithm and AI. We are perfectly capable of coming up with formulae that protect the artist's right to create, but then also compensate artists as owners. And that's what we really need to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, Andrew, I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments, and I and I want to make sure to also thank Peter Decola, who uh, who we've lost here in the conversation for uh, the time he gave us. I thought those were really great points uh, that he was making about all of this. Uh, Dan, uh, before we go back to to callers, I want to I want to give you a chance to to talk about, I guess, the worry that some people might have about ownership of their ideas and of their craft. I mean, you're a writer. Uh, I'm a journalist uh, as well. Uh, these are things that we all hold quite sacred, right? These are all things that, that yep. we try to respect uh, in in the work. Um, I, I love that you were just talking about how much uh, artists who sample other artists actually love that work too, but do you see a danger in the idea of, um, you know, releasing control of that work uh, from the from the artists who created it, of of stripping them of that, and and whether that has implications in in other areas? Uh, does that lead to a diminished idea of things like intellectual property? It's a great question. Um, and the concept that you are alluding to is relative is related to a legal concept called moral rights mm-hmm. or droit moral, as it's called by lawyers. Uh, it is a legal concept that is much stronger in Europe than it is in America. So in Europe, they 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 uh, <clears throat> lean into 
the idea of an artist's right to control the destiny of their work, even after it's in the marketplace, right. much more than than we do. Uh, but I actually think we're leaning too much into it. So while, yes, I want to honor that thought that there is a risk um, to having a completely open marketplace, I think we're we are already leaned so far into an abuse of this idea of moral rights. And it's really it's not the artists who are winning. It is, as Peter said, it's, it's the corporations yeah, yeah. that are that are really caking off of this. So and, and, and again, our law uh, really is hypocritical on this point, because, for example, the idea of moral rights as it involves sampling is like, well, you know, I don't want somebody like, oh, this is a great example. Uh, Roberta Flack had a song called Killing Me Softly. And the Fugees mm-hmm. in the 1990s wanted to do a rap version of that song, you know, adding their own verses. I think they were calling it Killing a Sound Boy, right? Something like that. Mm-hmm. And she declined the use. So what they had to do is just remake the song. And it was a huge hit for them. And Roberta Flack got paid. Yeah. But they had to do it exactly the way Roberta Flack wanted it. Um, however, uh, she might not have liked uh, some of the ways that they did ad-libs. She might have not liked the music, but she can't do anything about that. Um, similarly, parody was ruled legal by right. the Supreme Court. It's protected. Um, so if I want to make fun of your song, if I want to weird Al Yankovic, it, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can do that and you can't stop me. Another thing, let's say there was some white supremacist uh, heavy metal group that wanted to remake the Kendrick Lamar song, All Right, which became an anthem sure. for protesters during the uh, you know the Black Lives Matter movement, post-George Floyd, pre-George Floyd, right? Kendrick could not stop them from doing it. Yeah. So where are the moral rights there? My argument is this. Look, you're an artist. You're, you're a responsible party. You decided to put your song, your precious little song, into the marketplace, into the marketplace of ideas. And you have every right be compensated for its use, whether it's use in whole or its use in part. But you do not have the right to control the destiny of your ideas or the handling of your ideas once they are in the marketplace. Yeah. Uh, because that's not how free markets, you know, free flow of ideas work. We want you to be paid, but we don't want you stifling further creativity or claiming ownership of things that really should not be owned. And this is the way we make music now. We've been making music this way since the late 80s. It's not just hip hop. It, it's pop. Uh, it's it's uh, There's sampling in country music, yep. right? Um, uh, on television commercials and things like that. It's a, it's a part of what we do. And it's delightful. It's beautiful. It's this, that's what people don't understand about sampling, Stephen, is that it is a system for talking to each other hmm. through cultural references. When I sample uh, a song like uh, Apache, um, which is a very common sample mm-hmm. uh, performed by the uh, 
the the Bongo Brothers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a it's something that when fans hear it, it's a connection fans throughout history. Yeah. yeah, right. Uh, and you've seen what happens at a party when a beat like that comes on. So, yes, I think that uh, moral rights ha- have been really um, the concept has really been abused, and it's not the artists who are winning in that system of abuse. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue to talk with Dan Charnas uh, about sampling and sharing, cultural sharing. Uh, We'll all add another uh, voice to the conversation as well. Richard Bush is an entertainment and intellectual property partner and uh, litigation attorney. He'll give us his view of all of this. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Cheryl Ann in Ontario, Larnell in Detroit, Harry in Sterling Heights. We will get to you as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today, I'm Stephen Henderson, and our guest is Dan Charnas, a professor, journalist, and author. He is the author of Dilla Time, which recently won the 2023 Penn Literary Award for Biography, a wonderful biography of Detroit's own Jay Dilla. Uh, he's also the author of a recent piece in Slate titled It's Time to Legalize Sampling. Sampling is what we're talking about right now, and the, the proposed idea that hey, we could do this differently. Uh, So much of music is dependent on sampling these days. Why not treat it like other forms of borrowing in the music industry? Uh, Make sure artists are paid for their work, but that they don't have control over how that work is used by another artist. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. If you want to join the conversation, you can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. I want to also add another voice here. Um, uh, Richard Bush is a partner in the litigation section and head of the entertainment and intellectually intellectual property sections for the King and Ballow Law Firm. Uh, Mr. Bush obtained a jury award of $7.4 million in favor of the heirs of Marvin Gaye against Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke uh, that arose out of their copying of Marvin Gaye's classic hit got to give it up in their song, Blurred Lines. Richard Bush, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you very much and good morning. Yeah. So we've heard a lot about the case to legalize sampling. I wonder what you make uh, of, of those arguments, given uh, your involvement in that pretty famous case uh, involving Blurred Lines and got to give it up. Well, not only was I involved in that case, but I probably have litigated more sampling cases than anyone around. I represented Bridgeport Music and Westbound Records out of Detroit in the early 2000s, where we brought more than 400 cases of copyright infringement against basically the entire rap music industry Mm -hmm. for sampling Bridgeport Mm -hmm. and Westbound's music. So I'm very familiar, obviously, with the law in this area, and I've been listening offline to your other guest and um, couldn't disagree more with just about everything he had to say. Um, There's a famous, uh, you know, the word sampling, people think that that means just taking a second or two of a song, but it's actually digitally lifting 
the actual sounds of a sound recording that was created and owned by either a record label or also the actual sounds of the underlying musical composition. And in one of the most famous cases from the mid-90s when sampling and just basically stealing music became um, part of the rap music industry, there was a famous case where the, the court began with thou shalt not steal. And that concept of being required to actually license and negotiate ownership in the new composition if you're going to sample or take someone else's music is founded in copyright law. Yeah. So I, I heard um, the guests talk about moral rights and that the control of someone's music being a, a European concept. I completely disagree with that as well. The Copyright Act is very clear that for the creation of a derivative work, and that's what sampling is, a derivative work, taking a part of someone else's work they own and they create it and they put money into and um, put blood, sweat, and tears into, you have to negotiate a license and you have to have, you have the right to say whether it's yes or no. Now, what your guest is talking about when someone recreates a song is called a cover. Right. And you can get a compulsory license to cover someone else's musical composition, but you have to comply with the Copyright Act to do it. And there's a lot of different requirements to do so. And if you don't comply with them, you can't do it. So it doesn't so, give them the absolute right. So, to do so, so I guess I guess I want. I mean, and and I, I, we are going to end up running out of time, I think, before we resolve this this uh, dispute. But but the word that you use there, stealing. I, yes. I guess I don't. I given given the connections between music across time and the ways in which, in the history of music, uh, people have borrowed from other people. I mean, is that is that the right word? It is the right word because it's called copyright infringement. Well, you know, I, I'm not talking about as a legal principle here. I'm just talking about is that stealing in in the sense of uh, appropriating somebody else's work without, uh, without justification? I mean, I, th- that seems much too strong a, a descriptor to me. Well, why is it different in music than it is in any other form of intellectual property that someone owns? Why are you making the argument that with music, you can you should be able to do things that you can't do with anything else? Mm. If you were to steal a scene from a movie or use a scene from a movie, you might say you're sampling that movie. Well, you have to get permission of the owner of the, mu- of the movie to do so. If you, you can go through, you know, whether it be computer code or anything else, if you take someone else's work that they created, then without permission, then you are literally stealing that work. And so I'm not sure why we would make the yeah. argument that, and, and by the way, there's a whole process by which you request, you request sure. the right to use yeah. it. And there are, there was, well, I want to, I want to get, I want to get Dan Charnas to address that though, uh, directly, what, what, what that difference is in his mind. Dan, what, what, what would you say? Well, you know, I I think that the most compelling part of, you know, what my fellow guest is saying is how you apply some of these ideas of a thinner version of copyright. Like a, my, my fellow guest is uh, arguing 
making a brave argument for the status quo, a very thick <laughs> uh, copyright. Uh, and I'm arguing for a thinner version of copyright. And then, you know, I, I'm obviously siloing it to music. Uh, and there are lots of provocative, uh, you know, things about thinking how you would do this in other media but it does actually happen in other media all the time yeah and it's not even considered to be theft for example um academic works and journalistic works all quote other works all the time and as and long as you cite them you're fine be, right yeah well yes, that's not really true cite them, that's, you're that's fine. not really true by the way i mean there is there's concepts of fair use and again you have to, if it's for scholarly work, um, you know, there, that's one thing. But again, there are rules. You can't just say, make a blanket statement. There are laws, rules, and elements of those rules that one has to look at. And there are ways to use things for parody and for academic works and for all kinds of things, but fall into fair use. All of this has been fully vetted by courts over the last 20, 30 years yeah, right. to but, establish the standards. But, but the, the question is whether an original artist should be able to prevent someone else from that fair use, right? It's, even if they you're compensated. Though. Again, if you, do, if you follow the law on the compulsory license statute that the U.S. copyright set out, you can... Um, you can cover a song. You can use it for parody. There are certain things that the courts but and the, the sampling law is, have said. Yeah. You can use things. You can use things without actually having to get formal permission. But what the law has said is that for a, what is called a derivative work, which is basically creating something by taking elements of a new work and creating something completely different of an old work. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I have to get. I'm really, permission. yeah. I mean, I'm really, I'm really. Guess, I guess, I'm struggling to, to to come to to understand the distinction you're drawing there, Richard Bush. But but you're right about the law. I'm I'm saying I'm not sure that the law gets it quite right when you're talking about something like this. Uh, but we are out of time. Uh, I want to thank Dan Charnas uh, for being with us, uh, and and I loved the article you wrote. I think it's very provocative and starts an important conversation and of course Richard Bush thank you for being here as well that is going to do it for us this week uh, tune in Monday when we're going to be joined by Michigan Supreme Court Chief Justice Elizabeth Clement to Tusk talk about the changes to parenting time in the Michigan courts this is 1019 WDETFM Detroit's NPR station your connection to news music and conversation we'll talk again on Monday